Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Michael Gilman. He's the CEO of a pair of Boston-area biotech startups. One is Arrakis Therapeutics, a company attempting to make small-molecule drugs against RNA targets. The other is Obsidian Therapeutics, a company seeking to take the next step in CAR-T immunotherapy, by carefully controlling dosing to avoid some of the worst side effects of these powerful cancer treatments. I went into this conversation thinking I'd ask Gilman a fair bit about these young companies because the science is just darn interesting, but we never got quite that far. Instead, we spent this time talking about Gilman's early life and key turning points in his career. Gilman has an eclectic background and really saw himself on an academic research career path for many years before entering industry. It was around age 50 when he became an entrepreneur, and he clearly found something he's good at. He's two for two as an entrepreneur, having sold his first two companies to Biogen and Bristol-Myers Squibb, respectively. Now before we dive in, a word from the sponsor of the long run, Presage Biosciences. I talk with a lot of CEOs for the Timmerman Report, and it's clear that all of them are under pressure to get clinical trial data as soon as humanly possible. Investors demand it, and patients deserve it. Phase 1 clinical trials have traditionally been the first time that you can get this data. Presage Biosciences is working to improve this approach. I covered the company in its founding days, and ever since they have been working on creating a way for researchers to obtain human data on investigational therapies a year or two before they could with a traditional Phase 1 trial. They are now working with biopharma companies to use Presage's patented device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. And here's the thing. It lets researchers assess several drug candidates at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. The device is being used in a clinical trial right now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And have you enjoyed listening to the Long Run Podcast? Then you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription newsletter. More than 1,000 individuals and 50-plus companies and universities subscribe to get signature in-depth analysis for only $149 per reader per year. Group discounts are available. Check it out at timmermanreport.com slash subscribe. Next on the long run, Vicky Sato. She's one of the industry's pioneers and still very much active in the game. Sato started out as a classic academic scientist on the Harvard faculty. The next 20 years of her career were as an operating executive at Biogen and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. There, she put her fingerprints on a number of drugs that are linchpins for those companies today. The last decade or so, she's been a teacher and mentor on the Harvard Business School faculty and as a board member. She's wise, whip smart, and suffers no fools behind the scenes. But she's also a warm person who cares a lot about the next generation of biotech leaders. It was a treat to sit down with her and discuss her career path. Stay tuned for that episode. Now, join me and Michael Gilman for the long run. Here I am at the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference with uh, Michael Gilman. He's a serial entrepreneur in biotech, currently CEO of a couple of startups, uh, one named Arrakis and another uh, Obsidian. Uh, and uh, I should say that this is Wednesday morning at JP Morgan. So if uh, both of us are a little hoarse, uh, that's why we've been up late and talking a lot. So uh, thanks for uh, joining me on the long run, Michael. Oh, great. It's a pleasure. Thanks. So um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, for those who don't, aren't that familiar, don't know, uh, where'd you come from? Well, um, uh, I'm, I mean, professionally, I'm um, trained as a biochemist. Uh, I, um, no, I mean originally. You're from oh, Canada. I am from Canada. I'm from Winnipeg, uh, which is, um, some people know where that is. It's basically uh, right in the middle of the country. It's, it's like a... Uh, about 50 miles north of the border between Minnesota and North Dakota. It is just flat as all get out, and it is cold. Yeah. Uh, and people play a lot of hockey there. Um, and I grew up there until I was uh, age 11, actually, and then my family moved to California, to L.A. And I uh, and actually back and forth a few times. I, I was in California for three years. I went back to Winnipeg for 10th grade and then back to L.A. 
Um, and then I, uh, uh, and then I went to college at MIT. Um, now wait a second. What did your uh, parents do for a living? My dad was an accountant. You know, my mom was a housewife. Uh, and, um, and actually by the time I graduated from, from MIT, they had actually moved back to Canada. And, um, my mother's still in Winnipeg actually. And I have a, um, I have a brother in Vancouver and another brother in Calgary and a sister in Ottawa. So, um, uh, and I only recently became a U.S. citizen. So I, um, I have had a green card since like 1966. Huh. Uh, and um, how does that work? You just renew it every few years? Yes. Yeah. 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 You don't. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I was carrying around for years. I was carrying around a card with a picture of me as an 11 year old on it. <laughs> uh, so eventually, you do have to get that replaced. Um, but I finally became a U.S. citizen um, uh, about a year and a half ago, um, and really just for no compelling reason, but just I finally got around to doing the paperwork, you know. And um, well, you get to vote. Yeah, well, right. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not sure. I'm not sure how I feel about that now. But that was that was the first um, presidential election. That was the first time I ever voted, actually. Oh. Um, actually, it's not quite true. The first time I voted was in the um, the local primary in my town, uh, Newton. Um, and so I went to vote in the primary, like to practice, I literally never voted in either country before, you know, at, at age 62 or whatever I was. And, um, there's not much going on in Newton. I mean, you know, I, I had a democratic ballot and most people were running unopposed and all that. There were like maybe three, um, contested elections, one of which was the county sheriff. And, um, uh, a few weeks later I was at a, actually an economy event and the county sheriff, uh, whose name was Peter something, I don't remember, was one of the speakers because he, he basically the county sheriff in Middlesex County, their main job is managing the jails, right? And uh-huh. so he's at sort of the front end of the opioid uh, crisis because okay. he's got thousands of uh, opioid addicts under his, uh, under his care. Really fascinating. He, he was on stage with uh, Richard Pops, actually. Anyhow, I ended up having dinner um, uh, with a group of people and he was at the same table. And so... I said to him, look, Peter, I have something sort of embarrassing to tell you. Uh, I, I explained this whole story that I just explained to you. And I said, I believe you're the first person I ever voted for. And uh, he like whips out his card um, and, and gives it to me, you know, with like a badge on it. I said, this is your get out of jail free card. <laughs> <laughs> it pays to be a U.S. Yeah, citizen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So sorry, it's a long. Well, story. so uh, coming back to your, uh, your upbringing. So um, how did you get interested in science? Well, I mean, I was always a pretty nerdy kid. I was always very interested in science. And I was actually interested in um, earth science um, and earthquakes, uh, geophysics. And when I was deciding where to go to college, I chose places that had strong geophysics programs. Um, and I ended up going to MIT. And uh, but I very quickly discovered two things. One is that a geophysics major at MIT was a physics major with extra stuff on top of it. And then the other thing I discovered was I really didn't like physics. Um, and, uh, but I, you know, sort of soldiered on. I worked in a, uh, in a uh, seismology lab. I did some, some work. I, I, I took a course in um, weather forecasting. And, um, but I had a roommate who was a biology major. And we'd be sitting at our uh, desks, you know, doing our problem sets every evening. And he, and he would every once in a while pop up and go, let me tell you some interesting thing I learned today. And, um, and after a while, it was like, wow, that is much more interesting than what I'm doing. So halfway through my sophomore year, I dropped all my physics classes and switched to biology. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Now, was the earthquake, the earth science uh, part of the California influence? Well, I lived through uh, at least one pretty substantial quake when I was there. Uh, the, there was a big quake in, in the San Fernando Valley in, like, I think it was 1971, uh, at six in the morning, you know, like knocked us all uh, out of bed, knocked out the power and stuff. But I was really into plate tectonics, you know. Uh-huh. I just thought that was the that was just the coolest thing. Really? So now this would have been you're at MIT, you're an undergrad, you're getting excited about biology. What what years are we talking? I uh, started MIT in 1972, so um, it was um, 
you know, it was the early days of molecular biology. It was uh, the Asilomar Conference, the famous Asilomar recombinant DNA um, timeout uh, happened during that period. Uh-huh. Um, David Baltimore won his Nobel Prize for reverse transcriptase, I think, in 1975. I remember, because I was working in the lab next door, I remember sort of stumbling through the uh, remains of the champagne celebration there. Uh-huh. Um, it was before splicing was discovered. Um, uh, and, uh, and certainly before any kind of molecular biology was, was widely, uh, um, widely distributed. And I actually worked in a, I was interested in, uh, I actually worked in a toxicology lab. I was interested, I got interested in, um, uh, mutagenesis and DNA repair. Uh, um, I thought DNA was just fascinating and, um, uh, and, um, you know, you get fixated on things early sometimes, right? And then, you know, and then you just kind of end up veering in um, in, in different directions. So where did you go to grad school? Went to grad school in Berkeley. Uh, and, um, uh, and in between, I actually spent two years working at a radio station, right? So we can come back to that in a minute. But I, um, I had decided um, that the only lab that I wanted to uh, work. The only guy I wanted to work for in graduate school was Bruce Ames, who was at Berkeley, and he's will be known to many people uh, in your audience as the inventor of the so-called Ames test, which is a sort of shortcut method for uh, identifying compounds that are uh, mutagenic for DNA. And um, and so I applied to Berkeley, but I applied to a number of other places. Uh, but um, the other thing that I spent my time on, so I there was like two things that I spent the bulk of my time on when I was at MIT, at least two that I'm willing to own up to uh, on this podcast. One was in the lab. I was just a total lab rat. I love the lab. And the second was I worked for the campus radio station. And um, uh, uh, the guy I worked for in the, in the lab um, he was kind of a hard ass, and he had some rules that you had to observe. And, and there was a particular cell line that um, – uh, was the basis for everybody's experiments. And he needed those cells to be treated. He expected those cells to be treated just so. They had to be split every day between the hours of this and that. And um, I had a radio show, a uh, morning show, that ran from 6 to 10. And so I said, well, so can I, like, do the cells after 10? Because the responsibility to do this um, rotated among members of the lab. And you had you had a month at a time where you had to come in every day and split the damn cells. And... Uh, <clears throat> so I said, so on the days that I have my radio show, can I do it at 1030? And he goes, oh, no, has to be done. Has to be done earlier. So I would get I would get out of bed at like 430 in the morning. I lived uh, in a fraternity house uh, across the river from MIT. I would trek across the bridge, you know, and it could be in the winter. It could just be wicked cold on that bridge. I would um, go to the lab split the cells at like 5.30 in the morning, then hustle over to the radio station and start the show at 6. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I just don't know how I did all of that, you know. Um, you weren't going to cut your radio show short. That oh, was a priority. Oh, no. no. Well, one time I, um, uh, when I was doing an experiment that, that, that was, I was doing a 48-hour experiment where I like had to take time points like every four hours for 48 hours. And one of the time points um, landed in the middle of my, um, uh, of my show. And so I... Um, I went in early and I just pre-taped it. And I just said to the guy who had the shift before me, just stick this tape on when you're done. Um, and so I actually listened to myself while I was splitting the cells that day and then was able to kind of hustle back before the tape ran out. Now, what kind of show was this? That was rock and roll. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You know, what today you would call classic rock, yeah. but in those days we just called rock. So you, you came on there like a DJ and you talk about the, you know, yeah. every you know, half hour, hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. This was the, yeah, this was the heyday of sort of, you know, underground FM radio, you know. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but you've caught the bug for biology at this yeah. point. You're, yeah. you're, uh, you're becoming serious. Uh, uh, and then, um, so what, um, how, how did you end up, uh, like, entering industry? Oh, well, so I, um, yeah, I was, a, I had a very academic orientation. I mean, after uh, Berkeley, I went to, um, uh, and, and in Berkeley, I ended up, I didn't, I, 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 Berkeley ended up being the only school I applied to after a couple of years at the radio station, because I was still convinced I wanted to work for this guy, Bruce Ames. And I went there and I did my first lab rotation there and I just really didn't like it at all. And um, so then I actually had a blank slate because I'm like, all right, well now what do I want to do? And just... Um, by way of sidebar, I don't want anyone to think that my time in Bruce Ames's lab was wasted because it's where I met my wife. Uh-huh. So, um, so that that was great. 
um, <clears throat> and ended up working in a pretty hardcore uh, enzymology lab that focused on um, bacterial RNA polymerase, you know, the enzyme that transcribes um, uh, a messenger RNA from, uh, from DNA. And um, I got a I got an unbelievably strong, like, grounding uh, in kind of old-school um, biochemistry, which was exceedingly painful at the time, but um, served me, you know, just incredibly well um, over the years. Um, you can recite the Krebs cycle forward and back. And well, you know, so I have a strong feeling about that. I actually cannot do that, but I know where to look it up. Um, you know, but I do understand what a dissociation constant is, and I, uh, um, and, uh, um, you know, I understand the difference between thermodynamics and kinetics and, you know, uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. And that actually comes in handy every once in a while. Um, so then I went and I did a postdoc. Uh, I actually came back to Boston and I did a postdoc with Bob Weinberg at the Whitehead Institute uh, in the heyday of, it was right uh, a year or two after um, uh, his famous uh, discovery of the first human oncogene, uh, RAS oncogene. So this would, would have been in... Uh, 1983 that I started in his lab yeah and um, and uh, so I got that's how I got really excited about uh, cancer biology and, and but particularly about the thing that I was really interested in was um, signal transduction how a, a how a cell um, uh, could detect that it was getting a signal to grow transmit that information you know across a membrane through the cytoplasm across the nuclear membrane into the nucleus and turn on genes and um, uh, and I got particularly focused on a gene called FOSS that some of your listeners will know about, which um, <clears throat> is sort of the first gene that switches on when cells get uh, a signal, um, like probably you know for sure within minutes and maybe within seconds. So the idea was, well, let's figure out what that gene needs. What are the sequences in that gene that are receiving the signal? Let's work backwards. Um, and so uh, that's it what. These were the days of early manual sequencing, Sanger and the Maxim Gilbert method. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, my, oh, yeah. oh yeah. I did a lot of Maxim of... Gilbert sequencing, um, uh, a lot of Maxim Gilbert sequencing, um, you know, which, which today would be regarded as chemistry, right? Um, and, uh, um, uh, and so, um, yeah, and it was the early days of, you know, again, another workhorse assay, which was actually invented uh, uh, at the Whitehead or at MIT while I was there, which is the so-called gel shift assay, where you could tell if a D, uh, you could identify DNA binding proteins by their ability to move a labeled piece of DNA up in a gel. And um, so I got very excited about about that and um, uh, started working on that. Well, you know, I mean, I had a few failed projects, as all postdocs do, but I eventually settled on this, and and it was fantastic. And you know, if you want to learn more about it, read Natalie Angier's book. <laughs> I know. It's natural Obsessions. Yeah, yeah. I'm in the chapter on failures, actually, because um, <laughs> because my project was, like, in the dumpster at the time. Um, it's very funny. It's very funny to go back and read now, actually. Well, every grad student and postdoc has that moment yeah. of despair. Where it's yeah. like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? Yeah. But that's, but that's important, right? And it's important for what we do now, right? You, you know, um, our business is largely about failure, right? Uh, and um, you need to learn to, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, uh, figure out what you learned from that failure, and um, course correct is required, right? Mm -hmm. um, or... If you conclude that you're really going down a blind alley, then just, you know, cut your losses, get up, and go and do something else, because there's plenty of science. Presage Biosciences has a micro-injector device that enables intratumoral microdosing of experimental cancer drugs. Why does this matter? It enables researchers to evaluate several drug candidates at once against a single tumor while the tumor is still in the patient. It's in clinical trials now. To learn more, go to presagebio.com. And do you enjoy this show? Then you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription newsletter. More than 1,000 individuals and 50-plus companies and universities subscribe to get in-depth analysis for only $149 per reader per year. Group discounts are available. Check it out at TimmermanReport.com. Subscribe. So you dust yourself off. You finish your postdoc. Uh, you ended up at Cold Spring Harbor yeah, right after that? I got that? a job at Cold Spring Harbor. Um, uh, you know, as an independent investigator there, it was a fantastic place. I mean, it, it does not get much more ivory tower than Cold Spring Harbor. Um, you know, there's very little to distract you 
from doing your science. I mean, at that time, there wasn't, you know, there wasn't even really any teaching to do. Um, when we first got there, uh, this was in, uh, late in 1986, um, you know, uh, um, uh, I had a two-year-old daughter. Uh, we lived on the lab grounds. I mean, I could literally see into my lab from my bedroom window. I mean, as a general rule, I didn't look, but, but it meant, you know, that I could like freely go back and forth at all hours of the day and night between home and the lab. And I did, you know. Short commute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was fantastic. I mean, I would go weeks at a time without ever leaving the lab grounds. I mean, my wife thought it was a little weird. <laughs> we eventually, um, you know, bought a house five minutes away. But I mean, it was just for me, because I discovered a scientific problem that I just, uh, that, I, that I was just really sort of fixated on. Um, it was just a fantastic environment. And, and you know, Cold Spring Harbor is, uh, it, you know, they has never really had a lot of money, right? So, you know, typically someone who is getting their first academic job will be negotiating their sort of startup um, funding and stuff like that. And Cold Spring Harbor is like, ah, we don't do that, you know. They gave me they gave me a lab bench. They gave me a set of used pipettes. And they just said, get to work. And I'm like, fine, you know. And, uh, and I was there for seven or eight years. Um, uh, you know, uh, ended up having a, you know, fairly substantial group, you know, maybe 12, you know, 12 folks, grad students and postdocs. And, and what was the problem that was uh, on your mind? Continuing to study uh, basically the same thing that I started on the Weinberg lab, uh, trying to understand how, this, how the FOSS gene was uh, regulated by, by signals. Um, uh, ended up actually being in on the discovery of the JAK-STAT pathway um, uh, and a lot of stuff, and I and I and I joke about it now because um, you know one of the differences between uh, I think the academic world and the industrial world, or at least the difference for me, is that as an academic, your job is to sort of know more and more and more, but less and less and less, right? Uh, whereas now my job uh, now I know next to nothing, right? Um, I'm you know I'm a whatever they say, you know, a mile wide and an inch deep, and. Yeah. That entire, our entire lab at Cold Spring Harbor was basically focused on one 20 base pair piece of DNA, you know, and I could, I could recite it forwards and backwards, actually, which wasn't hard because it was a palindrome. Uh, and, uh, and I could tell you, you know, because I, you know, we'd mutated every single base pair in there. We knew what the effect of all those mutations were, you know, it was just very, very focused and detailed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but then you decide to leave academia. Why? Yeah. Well, I didn't just, I mean, um, I'm not sure I decided to leave academia. I decided I got itchy to do something different. Uh, and um, uh, and I, I did look actually at academic positions and I looked at a, actually a very attractive uh, um, uh, academic position at University of Michigan that I, you know, that I nearly took. Um, uh, and so I was just kind of, I was just itchy to do something different. And, and I had a friend, very good friend uh, at Cold Spring Harbor by the name of Mark Zoller. And uh, uh, Mark was actually the inventor of uh, oligonucleotide directed mutagenesis as a, um, as a, as a postdoc uh, at the University of British Columbia. And he was, he was on the staff uh, at Cold Spring Harbor when I arrived and we became fast friends. Um, uh, we wrote a book together. Or we, we, basically ghost wrote one of Watson's books, uh, 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 Recombinant DNA. You mean Watson doesn't write all his books? He might have once upon a time, but, you know, by the 90s, he was no longer writing them himself. Um, uh, nevertheless, he was collecting royalties. Um, I'm sure he was. Anyhow, Mark uh, Mark left um, Cold Spring Harbor and went to Genentech, actually. Uh and so he was the first person that I knew who was in industry. And actually, we, when we were writing the book, we would, you know, we we would we would essentially get together for a week. So he and I wrote together, and um, we wrote about twelve chapters of the book. And um, and you know, and you know how these so you end up getting to deadline, right? And you, you like have to produce a lot of material quickly. Mm -hmm. And 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 so you you can't really do anything else, right? You have to sort of carve out focus time to do this. So we would, you know, he either he would come out to Cold Spring Harbor and we would just hunker down, you know, somewhere and work, or I would go out to Genentech. And, um, and so I spent quite a bit of time out there um, with him writing. And, and, and so that was kind of my um, exposure to it. And it was, and of course, Genentech was, was really a thrilling place in those days. What years are we talking? This would have been 1990-ish, uh -huh. 90, 91, 92. Um, 
Genentech was, you know, doing great science, but they weren't, you know, Genentech quite yet. Right, but but you could go there and you could see. I mean, there were smart people around. The the, the magnitude of the place was was already quite impressive, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and the thing is that you know at the at the time, I I think I felt, and I think most people felt that um, that there was something second tier about the science that was going on uh, in industry. And uh, the time I spent at Genentech put the lie to that, right? I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of interesting, right? Um, Mark eventually um, moved to um, Ariad, so he was one of the f- one of the first scientists hired at Ariad uh, in 1992 uh, when it was founded. Um, so uh, uh, he moved uh, to Cambridge, and um, uh, in 1994, um, Ariad uh, in licensed some new technology from Stuart Schreiber at Harvard and Jerry Crabtree at Stanford. Um, to develop uh, regulated gene and cell therapies, which is a topic we could come back to. Um, and they were looking for somebody to run this program. And, and, and Mark called me up and said, you should, you should come up and look at this. And I'm like, well, I'm not sure I really want to work at a company. But, you know, he's my buddy, and I agreed to come up and visit. And so I um, came up to Boston. Uh, and I, I also was giving a seminar at Harvard Medical School. So I had, I had these two back-to-back days, one day at a pinnacle of academic science and then the other day at a scrappy little startup. And um, the differences were very striking to me. Um, you know, you go, when you go and you give a, a seminar um, at, you know, an academic place like this, you spend most of the day in these one-on-one meetings with other faculty members and eventually at some point you get your talk. You give your talk, and the what I recall from that day uh, at Harvard was that everybody I spoke to was brilliant and doing amazing science. But I don't remember much of that. What I really remember is the fact that Professor A had no idea where Professor B's office was. Like they, you know, like they had to walk me to the, you know, to my <laughs> next appointment. They just, you know, it was clear these people did not talk to each other, right? Mm-hmm. And then the next day, I went to Ariad and instantly clicked in on the idea that this is a completely different room. This was a team, right? These were like a bunch of people who were all trying to do the same thing, right? They were not cowboys like academic investigators are. And um, I think one of the issues that was um, uh, making me unhappy at, at Cold Spring Harbor at that time was that I felt like I was losing my sort of lap, I was losing my contacts with other people. Like, you know. Well, you're deep down the rabbit hole. Well, deep your... down the rabbit hole. Um, you know, I had a pretty sizable lab. I used to work in the lab. Now I'm not working in the lab. And, and you know, I would walk into the lab and suddenly everyone would shut up and turn down the radio. And I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, I don't want to be that guy. Uh, and, you know, and, and my cohort there, you know, the investigators, the young investigators who started about the same time, it were really sort of in the same situation. So, like, I wasn't really talking to anybody. And um, and that visit to Ariad made me realize that, wow, there is a very different way to do science. So I was kind of intrigued. And um, the person I called for advice actually was David Baltimore, um, who, again, I knew from um, uh, being at the White and He was actually on the scientific advisory board at Ariad at the time. And I'll never forget this conversation because, you know, it was it was it was a pivotal conversation in my life. Um, and I remember I was sitting at my kitchen table on Long Island. He was sitting at his kitchen table in Cambridge. And, and uh, at one point he says, well, um, Mike, I think you could take this. I think you should take this job because you could do more than you're doing now. And my um, initial response to that was to sort of bristle, like, what the hell's wrong with like what I'm doing now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I quickly realized he was telling me two things that I didn't know. Um, one was that um, you know running a drug discovery program is actually a lot harder than running a, uh, an academic uh, research lab. I mean, it's multidisciplinary. You know, you've got a lot of accountability and and you know, you know, a lot of holes you have to navigate your way through. You didn't know this at the time how much you'd have to grow into yeah, that position. No clue, um, uh, no clue. And um, and then the other thing he was telling me was that I had the bandwidth to do it right. Um, and so, um, so I did it. And, you know, it was uh, as a sort of a, uh, as a personal decision, it was probably not smart, right? At that point, we had three young kids. I had a tenured, basically a tenured position at Cold Spring Harbor. I could have stayed there forever. Um, 
you know, uprooted the family, moved up here. I mean, I can tell you in retrospect that I had no idea what I was getting myself into, right? Um, I thought I knew, but I knew nothing. Um, but it turned out that, um, uh, that I really loved it and that I was good at it, right? And How quickly did that take to realize? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, pretty quickly, though, you uh-huh. know, pretty quickly. Um, that I really loved being in, uh, uh, having a sort of a much more focused scientific goal. I loved, um, uh, I'm basically a data junkie. I mean, bottom line is I'm basically a data junkie. There's nothing I love more than data. And what I realized quickly was how much data a well-functioning project team can generate, right? And, and it just, it just sort of nourished me. New data every week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, smart people, and everyone's tr- you know everyone's trying to solve the problem. The problem, and the idea that you would walk into somebody's office to ask for help, and know that their inclination is going to be to help you, and not to say, "Buzz off, I've got problems of my own," mm-hmm. you know. Um, yeah, which isn't to say it was uh, you know uh, bump free. I mean, I got fired and actually sued and uh, all, all sorts of stuff but but it was it was a great experience for me i i discovered that this is kind of this is kind of what i you know what i meant to, what i'm sort of meant to do sued what for well you know i i was i mean i was i have to think about how much i can actually say about this um but i, I was sued for um so i left uh i left Ariad, or i was again i was fired i mean i was literally came down for what I thought was an executive committee meeting. And the next thing I know, I was being read the riot act and escorted from the building. And, um, uh, and, and then um, I, start, I eventually took a job at Biogen about three months later. And, um, and I got sued for violating my non-compete. Basically. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm a, this is why I hate non-competes, right? People go, <laughs> people go, ah, non-competes are not a problem. So, not competes are a problem. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, we can talk about that in another yeah, podcast. Yeah. I'm not a fan either. Yeah. But um, so that was pretty stressful. Oh, yeah. Uh, I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was terrible. It was terrible because, but, but I learned, you know, but, it, but I learned a few things from it. Like, number one, it was survivable, right? Like, I, um, uh, you know, there, there obviously was, you know, it was obviously a, you know, well, so as a younger man, um, um, you know, I was kind of a fighter. Right. And um, I, uh, you know, tended to dig in my heels if there was something that I believed in. And you can get away with that in an academic environment. Right. You can't actually much harder to get away with that in a corporate environment where there is an actual chain of command. Oh, so you were defying your boss. Is this yeah, kind of the, yeah. the root of it? Yeah. I mean, if, if you were to ask him, he would tell you that I was guilty of insubordination. Okay. <laughs> um, like many entrepreneurs. Yeah. 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 Um, and, uh, and, and so for me, again, it was an important lesson. Uh, so I learned a couple of things. Well, I learned many things. Boy, did I learn a lot about the legal business, right? Because uh, that, that, uh, suit went on for like four years and went through discovery and uh, it was just ridiculous. But um, uh, I learned that um, your boss is your boss uh, and and you can't change that, right? And that... Um, Unless you quit. <laughs> right. Well, therefore, you, you need to pick your boss wisely, right? I mean, uh, that, I mean, people will tell you that all the time, but I'm, I'm here to tell you that that is, that is for sure the case. Um, uh, and... Uh, and to sort of recognize when you've, I mean, it is important to, you know, to make a persuasive case for what you believe is the right thing to do, but to also recognize when you're not going to win that battle, right? Mm-hmm. And live to fight another day. Um, so that was sort of lesson number one and one I, and one that I actually put into practice when I sort of found myself in a similar situation by a number of years later. Um, um, but then the other is that, you know, I'd spent five years deeply immersed in this one scientific problem, right? That I just lived and breathed and sweated and cried and bled over. And suddenly in an instant, it had been ripped away from me, you know? And, um, and I was just, I was just stunned, shocked and stunned. But you got kids. Yeah, too. I had kids. Right. So I, I got home. I like, I like, like I said, I'm like, find myself in the parking lot. I'm like, holy crap. And I somehow I got home and it was like 1030 in the morning. And like, um, my wife is like, what happened? And, you know, one by one, as my three kids came home from school, <laughs> they're like, why is dad home? 
boy's dad's car in the parking lot, you know, in the driveway. And, you know, one by one, I had to sit them down and explain to them what happened. Um, my oldest daughter, I guess, would have been um, about 15 years old at the time. And, she's, and she immediately burst into tears. Right? Like, are we going to have to move, you know? So that was a, that was a tough day. But um, I went to bed that night. I slept like a baby. And I woke up feeling like a million dollars, right? Because, like, all the stress had just completely drained, right? I, I, I was... Um, I just, I just felt completely liberated, you know, and you know, I mean, I mean, I had some financial concerns, um, but, um, uh, but I just immediately said, all right, well, what am I going to do next? And and the thing is, the 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 other the thing I learned about that is, as a scientist, as a scientist, actually, we're pretty fickle creatures, right? We get, you know, we we go deep and we get fixated on a particular scientific problem, and we think that there's nothing else more important in the world. But the fact is, like, you know, that could be taken away from you, and and um, three weeks later you're onto something else, and you're just as deeply in love. And that's turns out to be very important in the business I'm in now, right? Because you know, like I've sold two companies, right? And mm -hmm. you, that is a bittersweet experience, right? Because you do end up surrendering control over these things that you spent a lot of time and energy on. Well, let's fast forward a little yeah. bit. So now you you uh, you move to Biogen. You know this stuff's going on. It's, it's distracting. But you know you're you're um, you're you rise to the ranks. You, pretty soon you're running a research group. Mm -hmm. um, company's getting bigger. It's it's yeah. got its issues. But then you become uh, like. How do you become an entrepreneur? Well, so I was at Biogen for uh, about seven years, something like six or seven years, and, and as you say, I, I you know, I, I like I moved up pretty quickly, and I became the uh, head of discovery research. This was Biogen IDEC, right? So at the time uh, I left, there were like 450 scientists, um, uh, about two thirds of them in Cambridge, and about a third of them in San Diego, and so I was like going back and forth, which was kind of exhausting. Um, but you know, there were a lot of things going on. Um, I, I think what what I would say now is that, um, you know, like many um, people, you know, like many sort of type A personalities, you know, I climbed and I climbed and I climbed and I climbed and I like and I got to the summit, so to speak. And yeah. I'm like, I don't like it up here. I actually don't like it up here that much. You know, I had become a bureaucrat. Right. Nothing. You know, I. I would come in in the morning, I'd be issued my calendar card, I'd go from, you know, I'd go from meeting to meeting to meeting, you know, more or less speaking when spoken to, and I'd go home at the end of the day and just could not figure out if I'd done anything valuable that day. You know, it was just, it was, it, you know, it was just not nourishing my, my soul. Meanwhile, there was, a, there was a lot of, um, uh, challenges at Biogen. This was a time when, um, Tysabri had been pulled off the market. And mm -hmm. so, Biogen had had to downsize, um, and I was instructed to lay off like one third of the research organization. Um, um, you know, for you know, the the logic behind that was completely obscure to me. Like, I tried to find out, well, how'd you arrive at that number, and what is it that you're trying to fix? And you know, like, I need to know if I've got to downsize the organization. I know I need to know kind of how to do it. Um, and um, and I worked and I did that. Well, I drew up a plan and I had to do it by myself, just me and a, like an HR person. I couldn't tell any of my uh, staff. It was It was really painful. So you're, t you're firing people one by one? No, no. Well, the, the idea at th that time was, no, coming up with a plan of who was going to be let go, yeah. right? And um, which I presented to, um, uh, you know, at, at the time, Jim Mullen, um, uh, and he didn't like my plan. And so I said, fine, make your own plan. And I added myself to the list, and so um, I uh, I got laid off with 150 other um, uh, scientists uh, at Biogen, and um, uh, this was in the fall of 2005. And once again, um, I kind of had a blank piece of paper, uh, and I had sort of the similar experience I had when I left Dad, which is wow, you know. Um, there's intelligent life out here. I need to learn. I need to learn what's up. I was 50 years old, uh, and I, uh, for the first time, I got to. I started getting. I started to meet some of the local VCs. I had not really ever dealt with those guys before. I mean, my my job at Biogen was very intense. It was largely inwardly focused, uh, um, and very early on, I got introduced to the guys at Atlas um, and spent an afternoon with them. Um, just brainstorming, you know, things I was interested in, things they were interested in. Um, and we left that meeting with this idea that we were going to start a company focused on fibrosis. 
And that was um, basically as deep as the analysis had gone at that point. <laughs> and they said, hey, we've got an empty office. Figure it out. Let us know. So this was before they, they had any sort of formal like EIR program. Um, you know, they just they literally they just said, here's an office, you know, here's a printer. Uh, you know, let us know if you need anything. And um, really, it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me, right? Because now I had a scientific problem that I could sink my teeth into again. Mm-hmm. I could do my own research. I could do my own thinking. Um, I was left alone, which um, satisfied my strong inner introvert. Uh, and and it actually reinvigorated me because it reminded me actually why I was in this business in the first place. It was not to sit on steering committees, right? It was you know, to learn about new science and to try and break it down and to, you know, try and make it real. Uh, and that led, obviously, to the uh, founding of, of Stromatics. So we're at the um, the founding of Stromatics, yeah. idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a need here. Yeah. Uh, and you're, uh, you like new challenges, uh, the blank sheet of paper, the proverbial one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you worked on this for a few years. Um, how, well, how did this uh, gain momentum? Well, so the the um, so fibrosis it's, fibrosis was starting to make itself known as a, um, uh, a really a critical um, medical problem, uh, uh, but it's not a disease, right? It's a pathology um, that so it, it's sort of orthogonal in a way to uh, well certainly orthogonal to the way drug companies are organized, right? Around therapeutic areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fibrosis is the you know final common pathway of most forms of solid organ failure, and um, uh, and you know it affects you know millions and millions and millions of people. Um, the so there was a lot of interest in in it, and um, and actually a pretty pretty good understanding I thought of the underlying molecular and cellular biology of fibrosis. So you, you know the issue was not about finding the right targets. I was pretty confident that there were some pretty respectable targets out there. The issue was how to prove it and how to prove it in the clinic because most of these diseases are lifelong, they're slow, uh, and the question is, and really the, uh, the challenge that, that Biogen was trying to sort through with the program that we ultimately took out of there was um, how do you, um, you know, how do you figure out if this drug is doing anything uh, in a reasonably sized phase, phase two trial? Right. Classic problem for, say, Alzheimer's. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. And, you know, and um, and the problem is actually that you can't, right? At least if, if the only thing you're willing to believe is is um, uh, sort of real clinical endpoint data, then the fact is you probably can't do it in fibrosis. And so, you know, if you were Biogen at the time, you were looking at taking this molecule essentially all the way to phase three and spend whatever, 200, 300 million dollars before you turn over the first card and go, man, we probably shouldn't have done that, right? And by the way, how big is the market and can we justify that time and expense? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But, but so that was never an issue. It was clear uh, at the time that, that, uh, that IPF was really the killer app for this drug. Um, but, uh, but, you know, it takes a strong stomach to write that check, you know, and, um, uh, uh, and um, so what we, what we were, what we'd figured out at Stromatics, what we were trying to do at Stromatics, uh, and honestly, what I would say now, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, the, the one intellectual act um, that created value uh, there was we simply accepted that we could not get that answer. Um, and we deconvoluted the question uh, into a, um, you know, a biological hypothesis and a clinical hypothesis. And um, we just accepted that we cannot test the clinical hypothesis in a small and expensive trial. Um, but that we had a very strong biological hypothesis, which is that this uh, antibody would attenuate TGF-beta activity in the lung. And that we could test in a small number of patients, statistically robust uh, fashion. And, and, and in a relatively short time, we thought the trial ended up taking years. But, uh, um, but of course, if you do that experiment properly, if the answer to that is no, it doesn't impact TGF-beta activity in the lung, then you're done, right? You don't, you don't have to spend another penny on it. Um, but if the answer is yes, you've dramatically de-risked the next experiment, which, by the way, it's a very different experiment, right? You can't like answer both of those questions in the same experiment. And, um, and that was a strategy. And, and, and we... so. 
really what I did in that you know year plus that I was sitting by myself in the uh, Atlas office was to identify clinical trial settings where that where that biology experiment could be done uh, feasibly and uh, relatively inexpensively. And our you know the investment thesis was that if we can um, show that we have an active antifibrotic drug on you know say twenty five million dollars of capital, we will have an asset that's worth ten times that, right? And so that's the kind of math that makes these guys happy. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and then lo and behold, you, you know, the answer turns out positive, and you're able to sell it back to Biogen. Well, so so interestingly, the answer has turned out positive, but only just Biogen's only just recently announced that. What actually happened was um, so we so again we took this molecule out of Biogen. Um, Biogen um, had an equity position in the company. And they, they had a board observer. So they sent someone to our board meeting. So they stayed very close to the program. And um, once they realized, well, we, we went through some terrible ups and we were on clinical hold for like two years and all kinds of stuff happened. But eventually we figured it out. And, uh, and once Biogen figured out what we were planning to do in this clinical trial uh, in IPF patients, and we figured out a way to take out 50% of the risk on 10% of the cost, that's when they made the, the offer to acquire the company, before we ever dosed a patient in that trial. Um, and, um, and we didn't dose a patient in that trial until after the acquisition. So, there, but there, so what were they buying it for? They were buying it because we'd so, they figured we'd solve the problem that they'd failed to solve. Now, there, you know, there, there was other context there, right, which is the entire management team had turned over, right, uh, uh, in that intervening period, and the you know the incoming team, you know George Scangos and Doug Williams, got excited about fibrosis again. Like one of the reasons that Biogen abandoned the program, um, you know, back in whenever that was, two thousand six, was because they had, as part of this whole downsizing thing, had gotten out of fibrosis, right? So it was an orphaned um, program. Um, but in that intervening five or six years, they got interested in fibrosis again, and of course they knew this molecule, right? I mean. Uh, they knew this molecule very well, and uh, it, it became sort of an anchor tenant in their new reconfigured fibrosis program. Okay, so that transaction occurred when? This is like 2012. 2012. So now you're, you were a first-time entrepreneur. Uh, Atlas you know, kind of rolls the dice. You, you, you test this hypothesis. You're, you're right. Now you're a proven quantity. Mm. Uh, so uh, you can do something else. You can do entrepreneurship again. You probably could go back to a big company if you wanted to. What, uh, what did you want to do? Well, so I did go back to Biogen. The whole Stromedics team moved back to Biogen. They, they, they wanted the, to keep the team intact. So um, I stayed there for about a year, um, a year and a half, um, which um, probably just confirmed that I was no longer cut out for a big company. So I got fired again. Um, uh, Insubordination in again? I mean, not in so many words. But, you know, but the thing is that I, I didn't, you know, like I didn't need that job, you know what I mean? Because I'd, I had discovered my hidden entrepreneur. This is what I wanted to do. I didn't, you know, they wanted me to be there. So I was there, but I didn't have to be there. So in a way that was kind of liberating, right? And one of the, you know, and so I, in a way I performed a couple of social experiments. Um, one was I worked, the job I had was I was uh, sitting over all of the um, early stage development program teams. And, and my mission was, I want these people to think about these programs like I, like we at Stromedics thought about our programs as entrepreneurs. Like what, you know, what is the risk you need to discharge? Because really what, you know, what, what investors are doing, what venture investors are doing is something very simple, which I wish someone had just explained to me, you know, because <laughs> it would have saved me a lot of angst. And that is to uh, ensure that each new dollar they invest in a program is invested at lower risk than the previous dollar, right? And that's especially important in our business where each subsequent step is like 10 times more expensive than the previous one, right? By the time you're running that phase three trial, you would like to have discharged as much of that risk as possible. Um, and so I, uh, you know, sort of challenged all the program teams to think about their programs away. So what, what, are you, what is your hypothesis? What is your biological hypothesis? What is your clinical hypothesis? What is your commercial hypothesis? And please state them in simple declarative sentences, right? Because simpler they are, the easier they are to test. And, um, and then allocate your risk across those hypotheses. In some cases, the risk will be uh, biology. In other cases, the risk is commercial, right? And make sure that the trials that you are running are taking one of those risks off the table, right? 
And um, so you're trying to behave like a VC in a big company. Yeah, or like an entrepreneur, right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, try to get people to feel like they really had a stake in these programs, right? I mean, you, you know, it's it's hard developing drugs, and you know, and, and I and I think you just need to, you know, there is a discipline around it that I think could be lost in, in large companies. But anyhow, it was interesting. I found out that so so this was. This is not a complicated idea. So for the people on the program teams, um, they loved it. I mean, it was like a touchstone for them, right? I mean, they could say, oh, um, I, you know, this is why we're doing the trial that we're doing. But, but what, it, what it meant in practice was people started asking questions about clinical trial design, which the, you know, clinical research organization was not happy about at all. And uh, I actually had um, one of the medical directors um, um, tell me that I was overstepping my bounds. And I'm like, I'm just asking questions, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I was a little bit of a shit disturber. Uh, and, um, you know, Doug, Doug Williams was my boss at the time, right? And, and I like Doug. And, and I actually bumped into him at Logan on Sunday morning. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I had these regular one-on-ones with him that were routinely canceled. And, um, and, uh, but suddenly actually, he actually kept one. So I went over to see him. And, you know, we shot the breeze about uh, some other things. And, and basically, he fires me. And, um, you know, I, I instantly realized what, you know, what was happening. And again, I've been fired before. I'm, and now, now I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I know the drill. The, uh, there was a woman from HR sitting in the next office who was also the person who laid me off the first time at Biogen. So, <laughs> so she knew the drill. Uh, and, this guy uh, <laughs> and, but it was, but, but it's great. And I, I have no hard feelings because, you know, the, honestly, I, I needed to be, I needed to be kicked out of there. Right. Because, uh, I, I'm not meant to be inside a place like that. And I would have stayed because, you know, I actually kind of enjoyed the job that I was doing and I was exceedingly well paid for it, you know? Um, and uh, and so, like honestly, I would have stayed. So, but for but he, you know, but I got I got disgorged, and uh, I went back to Atlas basically to recycle myself. Mm -hmm. And I plunked myself in their Monday morning meetings and just listened to the various things that were sort of coming in and they're working on, and just waited for something to like set off chimes in my head. And it was you know, and it was a science that ended up being padlock. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I heard a presentation about that. I'd never heard of any of that biology before, but something about it sort of spoke to me. I said, wow, that's really interesting. Can I take that one, please? What, what about it appealed to you, just quickly on the pad biology? Yeah, so the, so the issue there is that this idea that maybe we'd gotten autoimmune disease, like, wrong all these years, that we, you know, that we, um, uh, our conception of autoimmunity is it's a defect in the immune system, right, that causes it to, you know, uh, uh, attack healthy tissues, mistake healthy tissues for foreign. But what the Pat story suggested is that in some cases, the immune system is actually just doing its job and it's recognizing stuff that it was really never intended to see in the normal course of business. And it turns out that these Pat enzymes, peptidyl arginine deaminases, um, post-translationally modify proteins on arginine residues to an amino related amino acid called citrulline. And in patients with certain uh, HLA backgrounds, those citrullinated proteins are immunogenic. And that, um, and they are probably the antigens that are driving um, uh, the immune system crazy in rheumatoid arthritis, for example, in many uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients. And so the idea was, well, if that's, if that's the case, and instead of trying to beat down the immune system, which is not without its problems, um, you can instead go after the source of these uh, inflammatory um, uh, uh, antigens that are actually driving the immune system crazy. So it's a you know completely orthogonal approach to uh, autoimmune disease, and I, I just thought that was fascinating. Um, and um, it, you know, so that's what we did. And this was uh, you know one of those rare overnight success stories in biotech. Like you work on this for a couple of years, and boom, you sell yeah, this to yeah. Bristol Myers. I mean, it was almost it was almost less than that. Well, so 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 there the lesson is. Um, that it's important to find somebody who's buying what you're selling, right? And sometimes what you're selling is not what you think you're selling, right? So we um, we thought that you, you know this um, uh, that you know uh, one of the key observations that I think drove our interest in this was the uh, was that um, seventy five percent of rheumatoid arthritis patients make antibodies to citrullinated proteins, and the presence of those antibodies is ninety eight percent specific for RA. So if you have those antibodies, it means you either have RA or you're going to get it. And actually, you can find those antibodies in people 10 years before they show up with clinical disease.
disease. Hmm. So that seemed like a striking correlation. But correlation is not causation, right? You have to prove it. And we became convinced that the animal models were not going to be helpful for proving it. We were going to have to prove it in patients. So I figured that was going to be like a six or seven year exercise. We're going to have to discover drugs. Um, we were going to have to, you know, get them into the clinic. We're going to have to run a phase two trial in, in rheumatoid arthritis before anyone would really sort of care about it, right? Um, and um, the first couple of inbound um, deals sort of reflected that idea. They were like, um, like kind of options to acquire. We will fund you to get that answer. And if the answer is positive, then we'll buy you, right? I have to say that we were not so concerned. We found the biology really compelling. For us, what we thought, I think it's coming back to this issue of where's the real risk. For us, the risk was chemistry because these were a novel class of enzymes. It uh, wasn't clear they were druggable. We'd heard that companies had tried to screen for hits and hadn't found them. So that was the risk we were looking to discharge, right? So we didn't do hardly any biology experiments. We invested almost all of our effort in chemistry because if you can't make inhibitors of pad enzymes and you don't start a pad company, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so when we talked to BMS, so first of all, they were all over this biology. They knew way more about it than we did clearly, right? So they didn't need to be sold on the biology, but apparently they had screened their, you know, corporate um, um, uh, deck, small molecule deck, and they'd come up with nothing. And we walked in there, I mean, honestly, like idiot savants, right? With like 18 months of chemistry against these targets. And they were like, we'd like to have that, please, right? So, you know, we found somebody who was buying what we were selling. We thought, but we thought originally we were selling biology. And in fact, we were selling chemistry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, uh, uh, right place, right time. Well, and they were they were already they were already interested in that pathway, but they needed uh, they needed a foothold and they didn't have one. Right. And we and, and, and you know, for them, you know, I mean, it was a it was a very attractive um, transaction for the investors and shareholders, but not a lot of money for BMS to, you know, kickstart their program by three or four years. Right. Uh huh. Uh huh. So now you're two for two <laughs> as an entrepreneur. Um, and, uh, you found that this is, this suits you. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so now here you are at JP Morgan 2018 and you're running two companies at once. Yeah. You might, yeah. you might say not, no longer a serial entrepreneur, but a parallel entrepreneur. Yeah. How, how does that work? Well, well, so yeah, I mean, maybe the first question is why, right? Yeah. And, um, and it's a couple of things. One is that, um, I, um, uh, I, Felt I had I had time on my hands uh, at both Stromedics uh, and Padlock that I had extra bandwidth that uh, you know that was kind of going to waste. Um, you know, in case of of, of Stromedics, um, in large part because it was a clinical stage program, so you're kind of waiting around for stuff to happen. Uh, but also in in both companies, um, you know, there were strong management teams um, uh, in place who were doing all the real work. There just wasn't that much for me to do. And so I was completely convinced I had the bandwidth to do two of them. Um, so that was number one. And number two was, you know, um, you know, after consulting my actuarial tables, <laughs> it just makes sense to do them in parallel rather than in series. And um, I had done this briefly before when uh, Padlock was being incubated, uh, was uh, in seed uh, phase at Atlas. There was another seedling down the hall that, um, you know, that I kibitzed with. Um, uh, I liked the guys, I liked what they were doing and they kind of needed some adult supervision. And I, um, so I volunteered to, um, you know, be, uh, acting CEO of that company. So I split my time between those two companies. I did that for three or four months, but the problem was that I'd already been working on padlock for like six months. I had bonded with it in a way that I never bonded with the second company. And that felt like awful to me, right? Like I felt like I did not do a good job with the second company because I just never, it never got sort of the same share of mind mm -hmm. that, um, that Padlock did. So, um, this time around, I was super intentional about it. I started both these jobs on exactly the same day with exactly the same financial deal. And I work super hard to keep them on the same, uh, on the same level. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I don't think we're going to have time to talk in detail about these companies. I mean, Arrakis is working on small molecules to target RNA and Obsidian Therapeutics is um, calibrating dosing for CAR-T yeah. therapies. Yeah. Um, you know, addressing a couple of like, these are these are pretty cool scientific yeah. uh, problems. I mean, you got a lot of people in the industry working on it now. Um, and um, you're, um, you're going to give it your best shot. Mm -hmm. um, what... Um, 
what do you hope to accomplish uh, in you know within your actuarial tables? Mm. I don't know. I don't really have a plan. I mean, I'm a I I I I am more of a short-term planner than a long-term planner. I um, I it, you know I ended up with Iraq at Arrakis and Obsidian because I just found the science compelling and I like the people. Right? There's a bunch of uh, former Padlock people at Obsidian, a bunch of my former colleagues at Biogen at Arrakis. Um, I honestly I. Um, I, uh, since we're talking actuarial tables, I think what I believe in the end is that life is nothing more than a collection of moments, right? And you should, um, you should uh, maximize the quality of those moments. I just want to go, I, you know, I just want to go to work at a place that's fun and interesting to be. Well, best of luck. Thank I hope you. you come up with a couple more drugs and maybe they'll even be FDA approved and help people. Wouldn't that that would be something. That would be fantastic. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for joining me on The Long Run. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks to Presage Biosciences for sponsoring The Long Run. Next episode, Vicky Sato. She's one of the industry pioneers and still very much active in the game on the boards of Bristol-Myers Squibb, the cancer immunotherapy leader, and emerging companies like Denali Therapeutics for neurodegenerative diseases and Veer Biotechnology for infectious diseases. Hear about her career arc and lessons learned on the next show. Thanks for listening to The Long Run. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. See you next episode.